If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open with us your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter number 5. Isaiah chapter number 5. We will begin. I'm going to read the last verse of the chapter and then we'll move backwards and unpack some of it together and we'll read it as we go. So I won't read the whole thing at once. And we'll be in most of the verses, but not all the verses in Isaiah chapter 5. So we're going to look at verse number 30 in Isaiah 5. If you're there, say I'm there. If not, it'll be on the screen. So here we go. I want to look at the last part of this verse in Isaiah 5 verse 30. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by the clouds. At the time that Isaiah penned these words, uh, King Uzziah had led God's people to a time of peace and prosperity. I mean, they were experiencing it. At the same time, uh, the chosen people of God chose to, or rather chose anything and everything but God. In fact, they had forgotten all about God, but God had not forgotten about them or their sin. And as we read through this chapter, we're going to see Israel inching closer and closer to destruction. Now, I've been asked many times, on more than one occasion, Pastor, do you believe we're living in the last days? Now, if by last days you mean uh, the, the days of no more new revelation, the days of being uh, on this side of the cross, that Christ has already come the first time and we're awaiting His coming the second time, then absolutely, yes, we're living in the last days. In fact, we've been living in the last days for 2,000 plus years But if you mean by last days that time is running out on humanity and Jesus could come back at any moment, then no, I don't believe we're in the last days. I believe we've lived past the last days. And I believe we're living in the last nights. You know, when you hear day, when I hear day, I associate light with day, right? I mean, and night with darkness. That's just an association we make. And even the youngest among us understand this. Uh, If you have raised children in or around Chattanooga, you know this all too well, that there are some days in the summertime in Chattanooga, there are some days, I don't know how many, there's at least a few days where at 10 p.m. at night, it's not completely dark. There's still light from the day at 10 p.m., and, you're, and you tell your little one it's time to go to bed on those days, and they say, well, it's not bedtime. What do you mean it's not bedtime? And they point outside. Say, it's still daylight. It's not bedtime. So even the smallest, even the youngest among us, they understand, yes, day, you associate light with day and darkness with night. And so when you ask, hey, are we living in the last days? I'll say to you, I, don't, I think it's worse than that. Or, <laughs> depending on your worldview, better than that. Because I'm all about come, Lord Jesus, come. But I believe we have less time, not more time. I believe we're living in the last nights in America. I believe time is running out. I believe Jesus is coming back sooner, not later, than we might even think. In fact, here's what, here's what my pastor said 
Chuck Caring said it like this, quote, The sovereign God who planted America and blessed her greatly must be angered at the way our nation has forgotten him and rebelled against him in every conceivable way. As a result, we are entrenched with political darkness, judicial darkness, and spiritual darkness. It's midnight in America, end quote. I believe we see that in Isaiah 5. Now, yes, I understand this is written to not America, but to Israel, to God's chosen people. I get that. But you can apply these warnings in Isaiah 5 to any nation, including our own, including the land of the free and the home of the brave. You see, judgment isn't only coming one day. Judgment's already here. The remedial judgment of God is alive and well in and around the world. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at six warnings. Isaiah says, woe. That's how he introduces each one of them. Woe. Okay, six woes in Isaiah 5 that can apply to any nation, even our own. And to do that, I want to give you this big umbrella. The takeaway truth is what I call it. Sermon in a sentence. The umbrella that we're going to look at these judgments under is this. Americans cannot repent too soon because we don't know when it's going to be too late for America. We cannot repent too soon because we don't know when it's going to be too late. And so I want to take these six warnings and see how they apply to our nation, to our church, to our families, to our hearts. Okay, so here's the first one. The first one is move quickly away from egotistical materialism. Move quickly away Uh, from egotistical materialism move away from consuming for the sake of consuming or accumulating for the sake of accumulating move away from materialism on steroids and that's who we are as Americans that's who we are in America Do, do you realize that we import as a nation 23 billion dollars worth of toys any given year that's a lot of Rubik's cubes isn't it That's a lot of He-Man and Skeletor figurines, isn't it? It's a lot of Ewok villages, right? Well, how does that compare with with other nations? Well, the next top ten nations that import toys, the next top ten combined import less than we do. They import 21 billion. One nation, America, imports 23 billion. Do you know, and hadn't seen the latest numbers on this, but one I read from some years ago, Average U.S. household has 12.7 credit cards. 12 credit cards. What are we doing? I mean, is that not, would, would you agree that's a bit much? A bit? This materialistic, egotistical mindset where we just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. It's the same mindset that Isaiah dealt with in his day with God's people. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. I'll show you what I mean. 8, 9, and 10 is the first woe. 8, 9, and 10. Isaiah 5, look at it with me. Woe to those who, that's kind of the phrase he does in each one of these woes. Woe to those who, woe to those who, woe to those who. What does woe mean? Woe is a marker. Woe is a signal expressing, hey, this is a declaration of impending judgment that's coming. Okay? It means alas or how horrible. It's arousing attention to, a, to, to prepare for a declaration of and a reality of judgment. So, woe to those who join house to house. 
okay? Who add field to field. Popular term we could call that is land grabbing. Grabbing as much land as one could possibly grab. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there's no more room and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. What is happening here? You know, God prospered his people in a very particular way in the Old Testament. God promised his people the promised what? The promised land. Bingo. Right? Inheritance. You can read all about it in Joshua 13 through 20. An inheritance to every tribe was given in plots of land. God divvied up the land among all the tribes. And here we have tribes grabbing land that's not theirs to grab. And they're pushing their neighbors out. And they're egotistically materialistic. And they're grabbing up as much as they possibly can. The rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, all that kind of, that kind of mindset. And, and it was okay to buy land and property in, in, in the old co- under the old covenant. It was okay to do that. But at the year of Jubilee, you had to give it back to the original owners. They weren't doing that. They were just buying it up, buying it up, buying it up. Pushing their neighbors out. No regard for Uh, Their neighbors, no regard for their fellow Jews, no regard for God, just consuming for themselves. You know, in 2015, there was a Clean Water Act that was put into place, one of the largest land grabs in American history. Federal government claimed every tributary as their own. Tributary can be defined as anything that has a bank, anything that has a bed, anything that has a high water mark. And every one of them fell under the control of the federal government. And since that time, there's been rewrites and repeals, and even to this day, it's being fought. Land grabs. We read about multi-multi-billionaires like Bill Gates who is buying up farmland. We read about all these and we think, well, man, we'll never have enough resources to do that. We'll never have that kind of resources. And yeah, we probably won't have those kind of resources to do that. However, this materialistic mindset is everywhere, so we don't see it anywhere. We're blind to it. And it so consumed our hearts and consumed our thought processes and consumed our minds. Twelve credit cards? Twelve? And our family sizes in America, they're getting smaller. And our stuff is getting larger. And it all goes back to this mindset of consuming, accumulating for the sake of consuming and accumulating. Is there anything wrong with having things? No, not at all. Not at all. As long as you're leveraging it for the kingdom of God and to care and love for people and God and His Word, then no, there's nothing wrong with it, nothing at all. That's not what is happening here. We'll see it under the next woe. So here's the second woe, and I'm sorry, they don't get any better. I wish I could tell you, man, number four is going to be great, but they just seem to get worse. So here's the second one. 
Uh, this is a bit of a tongue twister, but that's how my mind works. I apologize. Hightail it from high hand hedonism. Get out of it. I mean, flee from it. Get away as quickly as you can. Hightail it. That's a Mississippi term. From high-handed hedonism. What is hedonism? Hedonism is a pursuit of pleasure. And one who is a hedonist or one who is pursuing pleasure literally believes that the, uh, the absolute aim of life is pleasure. The, the purpose of life, the aim of life is for the sole pursuit of pleasure. The highest good is pleasure. And those are pursuing that. I read Pastor Lee Strobel posted a, a, a something on social media. said, I just saw a t-shirt that a middle-aged man was wearing. It said, it's not a dad bod, it's a father figure. <laughs> Us middle-aged men in America, we do a good job on maintaining this father figure, don't we? This dad bod, don't we? We do a great job in America pleasing our flesh. We want to please the flesh. We're driven oftentimes by this pursuit of pleasure in so many different ways. But it's all according to the flesh and not the spirit. And that's where we get off track. And here's what God says about it in verse 11 and verse number 12. Here's how he describes it in Isaiah's day. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to pursue strong drink. I think of people who have addictions to alcohol and such as those who will spend time sleeping that off, right? But these were so consumed and pursued it so much that they didn't have time to sleep. All they had time to do was get to the bottle again and again and again, they did it all day. Spent all day drinking, according to God, in verse number 11. And then look at this. Who tarry into the evening as wine inflames them. Watch this. They have lyre and harp, tambourine, verse 12, and flute and wine at their feast. So they're drinking all day, eating all night, feasting and drinking and drinking and feasting. Is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with having much? Is there anything wrong with having so much you're independently wealthy? Absolutely not. There's nothing wrong with having much. There's nothing at all wrong with having so much you can retire earlier, independently wealthier. Nothing wrong with that. As long as you're leveraging it for the kingdom of God. But, the Bible says, look what it says in verse number 12, they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. They have no regard for God, no regard for His Word. They're not loving God and loving people. They're not even trying to obey the great commandment. They're not at all even trying to fulfill the great commission. They're consumed with self and this pursuit of pleasing the flesh is all they're after. It's all they're after. They don't regard God or His Word. And here's what we do with those folks in America. You know what we do with them? As a nation, you know what we do with them? Our media, you know, you know what we do with them? We make heroes out of people who have zero 
regard for God and His Word. And we do it all the time. And it's right in front of us. And we continue to do it. And they have no, and we celebrate that. Here's what Paul Manziel, Johnny Manziel's dad said about his son. It's, it's, it's just it's heartbreaking. Here's what he said. It's not a secret that Johnny, my son, that he's, he's a drug addict. I don't, I don't know what to say other than my son's a druggie and he needs help. He just hasn't sought it yet. Hopefully he doesn't die before he comes to his senses. That's, that's about all I can say. I don't know what else to say. That was a few years back when he said that. But. And, and we take those and, and we put them on Sports Illustrated. We, we, we make heroes out of people who have zero regard for God and His Word. And, and he's not the only one. There's tons of them. Tons of them. I mean, there's endless examples. So here is what happens in Isaiah 5. God gives two woes. And then I can imagine it just being so, because just being so... To the point that God, you know, God cannot coexist with sin. And I imagine this is just so much that in verse 13 through 17, God just says, here's what's going to happen. Here's the judgment. And so I want to read 13 through 17 just in one big, one big group of verses here before we get to number three. So let me read 13 through 17. Listen to God's word. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Because they're pursuing the flesh, pursuing pleasure, because they're just consuming. He says, therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. So they're doing all this drinking and feasting. All of a sudden, they're hungry and thirsty. Notice that. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite. Boy, isn't that, man, that's a strong word, church. Sheol is the place of the dead. Sheol is the grave. So God is saying, those uh, men that were drinking and feasting all day and all night, now their appetite's not being satisfied, yet the only appetite being satisfied is the grave. Being satisfied to the point where its appetite is enlarging because it's satisfied so much. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude go down, go down. Those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. They go down, not up. They go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, verse 15. And each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pastures, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. So notice what's happening. It comes to the place where uh, those that do not belong to them are grazing in their pasture and where the nomads, people that have no homes or houses or drink or food, are now in eating and, and feasting and on all their land because judgment has fallen. God Almighty, what He does, He takes those who are consumed with drinking and He calls them to drown. He takes those mansions that are beautiful houses and He turns them into haunted houses. Empty and desolate. He takes the haughty and he humbles them. And only Sheol, only the grave is being satisfied. Man, that's some fierce judgment, church. Fierce. And then we get to number three. I wish I could tell you number three was going to be better, but it's, it's not much better. Number three, the third woe is this. We need to abandon practical atheism. 
abandoned practical atheism. The Babylon Bee reported recently that Chick-fil-A has a new competitor. It's called the Chick-fil-atheist. It's an atheist version of Chick-fil-A. It's only open on Sundays. No other day. We hear atheist and atheism, and, and that's a foreign, that's often foreign to us. I mean, we live in the Bible Belt. I mean, we live in the South. We live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, God and country. What American does not believe in God, right? I mean, that's just a foreign concept to us. For decades, that's been a foreign concept. But what is a very prevalent concept, although you may have not heard it described this way, you see it all the time, it's called practical atheism. Now, atheism, one says, well, there is no God, and they live as if there is no God. Practical atheists say there is a God, but they live as if there is no God, no accountability, no judgment, no responsibility. And church, the church in America is full of practical atheist full of who say yes we believe yes we're followers of Christ yes we're a Christian and then go live however you want to live church is filled with that and the irony is not lost on me that just like the Chick-fil-a atheist or Chick-fil-a atheist is open only on Sunday practical atheist Live like God is only God on Sundays. And here's what God says about that. Verse 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Who draw sin as with cart ropes. Who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. So what are they doing? Let me, let me tell you what's happening here because it will help if you understand what the cart is and what, what is it talking about, a cart? What they would do, they would take all their produce from the land, their crops and wheat and fruits or vegetables or whatever. They'd load them on carts and they would take them to the marketplace. The cart would be driven or drawn, rather, by an oxen. And it had cords that went from the oxen to the cart and from the cart that went to the oxen. And the oxen would draw the the cart and they would go to the marketplace. Okay? But there's a problem. Verse 13 through 17 just told us. Judgment has fallen. They don't have any crops. They don't have any wheat, and and they they produce nothing. The land is not producing. So the only thing fruitful in Israel in this day was their sin, their sinfulness. So this cart is described as one that is loaded down with iniquity and falsehood and evil and sinfulness. The cart itself is even described as such cords of falsehood, and they're on their way to the marketplace with nothing to offer but their sin. And at the same time, they're looking to the heavens, they're shaking their fist at God and saying, God, this is what we have to offer, and they're taunting God. 
and they're daring God to do something about it. If you're God, do something about it and hurry up and do it if you're going to do it. Taunting God, calling out God, daring God with their sin. They're basically saying, God, we don't need you. We don't want you. We know what's best. One local pastor, Gary Jarrett, has said before, you don't pull on Superman's cape. They're taunting God to his face, daring God to do something about it. And so here's what Romans 1 tells us. If you tell God to back off and leave you alone and not acknowledge it, here's what's going to happen. Romans 1.28 says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a, 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 a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. Billy Graham said it like this, Our society strives to avoid any possibility of offering or offending anyone. We go to great lengths in our nation not to offend anyone except God. Except God. Well, how is it in the church that this practical atheism plays out? How is it in the church that we're loading our cart with our sinfulness our iniquity and our falsehood and carrying it off to market and shaking our fist at God and saying, do something about it. How does that play out in the church? Here's how it plays out. We act how we want to act. We buy what we want to buy. We criticize who and what we want to criticize. We do what we want to do. We follow who we want to follow. We hurt who we want to hurt. We judge who we want to judge. We reject who we want to reject. We ignore who we want to ignore. We talk, we text, we tweet, we post whatever we want to talk and tweet and text and post as if God does not exist and will never be held accountable for it. That's how we're living. That is practical atheism. You say one thing, you live another way. Practically, you're saying, well, there's no God because I'm not held accountable because I'm not going to be judged because God doesn't exist. Now, if I were to ask you, does God exist? Of course, you would say yes. Does your life reflect that? God says, if it doesn't, there's a problem. And woe to those who are such. Here's number four. I wish I could say, man, these get so much better. But again, number four, mourn perverted moralism. Uh, Verse number 20. Here's the fourth woe. Woe to those who are wise. I'm sorry, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good, okay, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Now, what, what's, what's happening here? You know, some words never change meanings, right? Some words have changed meanings. The word awful, for example, the word awful years ago meant worthy of awe. It was a positive word. When I hear the word awful today, I think more of a negative situation. The word silly used to be a very positive word. It meant blessed. Or worthy. Today it probably doesn't mean that same thing. (laughs) Some words change over time. But there's some words that just don't change. Good is going to always mean good. And evil is going to always mean evil. And light's going to always mean light. And darkness is going to always mean darkness. And sweet's going to mean sweet. Bitter's going to mean bitter. 
They're different. Light is not darkness, and darkness is not light. Amen? Good is not evil, and evil is not good. Bitter is not sweet, and sweet is not bitter. There's a difference. Male is not female, and female is not male. But our world says there's no difference. The world wants to tell you and is telling you that there's no difference between male and female. There's no difference between genders at all. The world wants to tell you there's no difference in race. Do do you know, I read of this British influencer. uh, No longer is he a he, he's now a they. And they have had 18 surgeries to change race. They, They now identify as Korean. See, the world wants to tell you there's no difference in race. There's no difference in gender. I'm telling you, church, our God is creative. He's creative. And he creates us in his own image, yes. But he's creative in how he creates races and personalities and male and female. Look in the mirror. He's creative. And he's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? Look in the mirror. Yes. But the wor- here's, the pr- here's what God is describing here. When there's no more differentiation, there's a problem. Yes, I know we're all one in Christ. But at the same time, even in Revelation, we read that in heaven, there will be people represented of every tribe, every language, every nation, every people. Different, but one in Christ. And when the world says there's no difference, we have serious serious problems and serious trouble. And that's what we're facing as a nation. And it's just moral perversion. I saw that. I don't know how this is going to work, by the way. I I can't imagine a situation where this is going to work. But apparently, now when I think of a passport, I think of traveling from nation to nation. Don't you? I mean, why else would you have a passport? But do you know now, when you apply for a passport, you now can pick out what gender you want to be. Now, please tell me, when you go to that nation that has just a little bit of sense, and they recognize male as male, female as female, how are you going to get in and get out? I don't understand that. Yet that's where we are. The moral perversion is just getting worse and worse and worse. And listen, I know I want to love people, and I want to love God, and I want to love God, and I want to love people, and I want to see the Great Commission fulfilled, and I want to see the Great Commandment obeyed. Yes, yes, yes. I want to see that. And I don't want the church to get a black eye. I don't want the church to get a black eye and give Jesus a bad reputation because we're always known for what we stand against. I want people to know what we stand for. But church, if we don't get a bloody nose every once in a while from bumping up against this culture, then we're too busy going with the flow. And this moral perversion is out of control. It's out of control. And God... It was out of control in Isaiah's day. It's out of control in our day. And God's not going to stand for it. Here's number five. End proud intellectualism. We need to end proud intellectualism. Now, is there anything wrong with being intelligent? No. Absolutely not. Praise God. 
that we can love the Lord our God with all our minds. Praise God for brilliant, brilliant men and women. Praise God for them. Nothing wrong with that at all. The problem is when we're prideful about it. And it gets us to the point where we're wise in our own eyes. That's what it says, rather, in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. They are proud about their intellectualism. They are prideful about it. They are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You know, we think we're so smart, don't we? Don't we think we're just so smart? You know, spanking has been around for a long time. Has it not? It's been around for a long time. Proverbs 13.24 Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Amen? Well, according to CNN, a, a, a recent report, there's evidence now that proves that spanking appears to not improve a child's positive behavior or social competence according to a global study. Now, this global study went to the wrong house. <laughs> In Ruth Greer's house, that spanking worked. I was there. I can attest to that. It works. But yet we're so smart, aren't we? We're so wise. Finally, a global study figured it out. Since it's been in place for centuries, in many nations, spanking has, but whoa, we figured it out. We think we're so smart. And this is what we forget. And in our wise and our own eyes, we call evil good and good evil, right? Let me remind you of something. Let me remind you of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. This isn't anything new, church. Adam and Eve, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of what? What is that? All the way back there. This is the problem. Adam and Eve wanted to have the right to call what they wanted to call good, good, and to call what they wanted to call evil, evil. And your heart and my heart does the same thing. And we are wise in our own eyes. And we think, well, this is good because I say it's good, and this is evil because I say it's evil. And all the while, God is the only one who is good. <laughs> he's it. And he's the one that defines it. And so what has happened in Israel here is they have abandoned the wisdom from above, and they bought into the wisdom of the world. And they look wise in their own eyes. So here's what they're saying when it says they're shrewd in their own sight. Basically, they're telling God, God, we got this. We don't need you. We know better than you. We've got this. This is an incredible quote I'm about to read to you. It is nearly unfathomable that someone could think this way. But this is one of the brightest minds ever to walk planet Earth, a scientist, uh, one of Stephen Hawking's colleagues. And here's what he said. Science shows that God is not necessary to explain the universe. I find it very hard to see how people could believe the Bible. I tend to believe in things there is no evidence for, but it is not always true. I do believe, for instance, in aliens. 
I believe that there's life on other planets, and I think there is no evidence for that. We don't understand the origin of life on earth well enough to say how probable it is that on another star life would form. But in my heart, for some reason, I find myself believing in aliens. The Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Right? So here's a highly brilliant, intelligent mind saying there is no God. And that same fool that says there is no God apparently is the same fool that says there are aliens. Isn't that crazy? That's where we are. That's where, that's where Israel was. Wise in their own eyes. Shrewd in their own sight. Number six, last one. I bet you're saying, thank the Lord it's the last one. Last one, flee from favoritism. Flee from favoritism. Verse 22 and verse 23. Now, there's nothing wrong with having favorites. There's nothing wrong with that. I sent you a text yesterday. Thank you for responding. And you responded with what's going to rule your grill on July 4th. Burgers, hot dogs, or barbecue is the three options I gave you. And I gave you three for a reason. Right? I didn't give you four. Five, I gave you three. Three. So burgers won. Burgers had the most popular um, favorite on July 4th. Hot dogs was second, barbecue third. I thought we were done with this conversation, but it looks like we're going to have to continue to have this conversation. Veggie burgers are not burgers. <laughs> Amen? All right. So somehow they got on there. I don't, they're not burgers. And there were others on there, but those, there's nothing wrong with having favorites. Man, you, your favorite is burgers? Praise the Lord. Your favorite's hot dogs? Yes. Your favorite's barbecue? All right. Your favorite's veggie burgers? We're praying for you. <laughs> All right, there's nothing wrong with having favorites. You can have a favorite color. You can have a favorite team. You can have a favorite um, show that you like. You can have a favorite pastor. Right. You can have a favorite food. You can have a favorite movie. Did I mention you can have a favorite pastor? Nothing wrong with favorites. Nothing wrong with that. But when we show favoritism, that's the problem. And that's what God is bringing out of this text in 22 and 23. And notice how it, how it happens here. Look at verse 22. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And look what they do in verse 22. Here's what they do. Woe to those, because of that, who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drinks. So that's the second time. Man, they must, alcohol was a problem, wasn't it? Second time he's mentioned drinking in, in, in these six woes. I believe alcohol is probably still a problem. And so he, he again says, what are those who are heroes at drinking wine? Valiant men in mixing strong. Look at verse 23. Who acquit the guilty for a bribe. Showing favoritism. Acquit the guilty for a bribe. And deprive the innocent of his right. So here, we get, we get back to the same thing. They're calling the guilty innocent, and they're calling the innocent guilty. They have no regard for the guilty. They have no regard for the innocent. All they care about is bribe. You bribe me, I'll go with you. I don't care if you're guilty or innocent. It doesn't matter to me. Bribe. These are governing officials. These are judges who are judging unjustly, who God says they will be judged. Showing favoritism. The number one American city with the highest alcohol abuse and drug addiction. If I were to ask you what American city is at, you might say New York. 
You might offer up Los Angeles. You might offer New Orleans or Las Vegas. But do you know the number one city with the most alcohol abuse and drug addiction is Washington, D.C.? Here's the place where the men and women are making decisions every day that affect you and I. And they live in a place with the highest alcohol abuse and drug addiction. And you say, well, Pastor, what can I do about that? I mean, what, what can we do about that? We can't make Washington repent. We can't make anybody repent. So what do we do? What did Isaiah, Isaiah couldn't make them repent. So what did Isaiah do? What, what are we to do? We are Americans, right? We live in America. We love America. So what, what are we to do as followers of Christ in America? What, what can we do? Church, we can do what Isaiah did. Let me show you what Isaiah did. Isaiah chapter 6. I want to show you what Isaiah did. Look at this. Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Remember, King Uzziah was the one in chapter 5 that had all this peace and prosperity. Now he died. The end came. And so, notice again what Isaiah saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord (laughs) sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, what did Isaiah say, church? What did he say? Did Isaiah say, woe are they? Did he say, woe is Israel? Did he say, woe is Washington, D.C.? Woe is America? No, Isaiah said, woe is me. Me. What what did Isaiah do? After delivering all these warnings of judgment to a nation who had forgotten God and turned away from God. What did he do? You know what he did? He looked up. He looked up and he saw the Lord. And when he saw the Lord and when he came into the presence of God Almighty, all he could do was say, woe is me. Not woe is them, or woe are them, or woe are they, or woe are those, but woe is me. So here's how we're going to respond today. Here's what you're going to do. I'm going to pray that you'll look to Jesus. The Bible says, consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he despised its shame, and he is now seated. At the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is on the throne. 
He's in total control. So we look up to him, we see him, we consider him, and we say, woe is me. And so I'm asking you today to ask the Holy Spirit to take each one of these six woes and say, Holy Spirit, could you show me in my heart where I am guilty of one of these woes? I want to turn from that. I want to repent of that today. So that, that's one invitation I'm going to ask you to do today. I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to bring those to light so you and I can turn and repent from that. Listen. That's the first thing we can do. Turn to God. Lift our eyes up to heaven. Look to Him. See Him. And say, woe is me. And each one of us repent as individuals, as families, as a church. Here's the second thing we can do. We can be grateful for the red, white, and blue. This American flag. Amen? We need to be grateful for the red. You know what this represents? This flag represents so much, but here's what it represents in the way God has blessed us. Under this flag as a nation, do you understand that we have the freedom to gather and worship? Do you know that? We have brothers and sisters in Christ all over this world that don't have that freedom. They don't have it. They have to gather in secret. At least now we can still gather and worship the one true God. Do you know that this word, the Bible, the word of God is translated into our language? There's only 700 languages where the entire Bible is translated into that language. Only 700 worldwide. There are 7,300 plus languages that do not have the Bible in their own language. They do not have the whole Bible. They may have the Gospel of John in their language. They may have the Gospel of Matthew in their language. But they don't have the whole Bible in their language. We need to praise God that in America, you've got more Bibles in your home and your language, and you've got people. And you need to praise God for that. We need to praise God that in one sermon, we hear more of the Word of God than four billion people will hear in their whole lifetime. We need to praise God for that. We need to praise God for the red, white, and blue. We need to thank God we live in a nation with all this freedom. And I love the red, white, and blue. We also need to praise God for this red, white, and blue. What these represent, these ping pong balls. We got them right over here, red, white, and blue. Got a white one for every gospel conversation you have. You drop one in the display. Got a red one for anybody that comes to Christ. Drop one in the display. Blue is for baptism. Red, white, and blue. Praise God for both of these red, white, and blues. And we need to get excited about the red, white, and blue of our American flag. We need to. Praise God for it and the freedom we have. But if you get more excited about the red, white, and blue of the American flag, if you get more excited about that, that red, white, and blue and what it represents, more than you get excited about what this red, white, and blue represents, you need to repent. You need to repent. So today, we're going to do that. I'm going to challenge every person that's able in this room to get to these steps, to come down front, somewhere down here. Get on your face before God and ask God, Holy Spirit, would you please show me any of these six woes that I need to repent of today? Secondly, I'm going to ask you to come and pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our president. Pray they'll turn back to God. Listen, 
And I know this was written to, the, to God's chosen people, Israel, but the, it applies to any nation who calls God their God. That is, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Is there appropriate time to protest? Yes. Is there appropriate time to petition? Yes, there, there are. But it's always appropriate to pray. <laughs> always. God says, if my people are called by my name, who will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will hear from heaven, I'll hear, heal their land. Listen, I'm challenging you to leave your seat today and get down here and pray for you, your family, and for your nation. Father, would you move in our hearts? Would you move in this place?